Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and with me on this special Saturday guest episode is my new friend. And I know I'm going to butcher his name, even though he told me how to do it, but I still know it's going to be wrong. Ivor SK. I know I'm close. (laughs) That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, you got it. Thank you so much for having me on, mate. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I think to pronounce your name correctly, I'd have to rip out part of my tongue and I kind of need it for the show. And that is the thing. It is so, it's suddenly so Southern Hemisphere specific to how you pronounce words. It's either. It's such an Aussie sounding term. You're exactly right. Yeah. And (laughs) I don't have the accent to make that sound good. It sounds like I'm saying it wrong. If I say Ivar, it sounds like I'm messing it up. But when you say it, it sounds like really elegant. (laughs) It does almost has a uh, Scandinavian vibe, which I have in mind. I've been sort of, yeah, almost, yeah, honorary Scandinavian since I've been in America, which is very nice. There you go. (laughs) Now, did you, were you born in Australia? I was indeed, yes. I was born uh, in a little town about an hour north of Sydney. Um, So right on the coast there, very beachy, almost California-esque, yes. Oh, that sucks. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Actually, funnily enough, Baywatch tried to shoot in the town I grew up in in the uh, mid-90s, but there was a furore in town. Half the town wanted it, half the town didn't, and it didn't end up happening. But, yeah, it was very palm tree and beachy. So I got, again, just very fortunate where I grew up, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, I the, the beach is my second favorite place in the world. I just got back from uh, a trip to California. I went to the NAMM show, and whenever I go, I have to take one day and just spend the entire day on the beach, just walk up and down, get some, you know, really good fresh fish meal. And, and just really, because there's nothing in the world, I think like the connection of the tide and, and like somebody's energy, there's just something really magical about that. It's something, I could not agree more. There's something intangible to it, particularly having grown up. Like I was very fortunate. I was about a five minute walk from three beaches where I grew up. And so you do, to a certain extent, take it for granted, you know, days where you thought I could have walked to the beach and I didn't. But you come out here and there is this intangible connection with the ocean and um, the, the sea breeze. Like I'm down in New Orleans and we've got the river. You can get out to the Gulf, but it's not quite the same until you get out to Mississippi and you start to get, like you said, that sand, that feeling of the sand walking up and down the beach, seeing them pull the fish off the boats and go straight into the kitchen at the restaurant. That All salty of that sort of- air smell and, and the, oh. yeah. But it, and it's the pull of the tide too. Like I, I, well, I'll tell you why I do this now, but I like walking where the water comes in, but not where, you know, it's going to drown me. Uh, maybe up to like my knees is about as high as I like it. So I can, I can feel that pull. I can sink into the sand a little bit as the tide goes back out. But there's just something about that that feels so good. Like I'm, I'm so grounded and connected with the world in a way that I can't find anything that, that really correlates with that. Absolutely. It's that connection to nature. You feel that there's something in the ocean, a power to it, certainly feeling it all pull out and pull in. I mean, growing up, I, I surfed quite a bit and surfing, you just feel that, that respect of nature because a wave that looks very innocuous can have so much power. It can knock you right down and then suck you straight back out again. You're right. That feeling of the tide is, it's almost primal or something. It's just yes. very, very real. Well, I'll tell you why I started walking that close to the water, because the first time I went, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to walk in the soft sand. That'll be better on my body. No, it is not. 
That is the worst <laughs> thing you can do. Uh, it was my first night in that hotel. It, it was in a haunted hotel at that, a famously haunted hotel in California. And I, the whole night I was just tossing and turning. I was so uncomfortable. I thought this bed is awful. It sucks. Who would stay here? And then I thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute. I did something very different than I normally would today. And, and it turns out it was walking in the soft sand. You use muscles in ways that you don't normally, because regardless of where you walk, there's some foundation to it, concrete, carpet, wood floor, something. Oh, that was such a bad mistake. It's and it's funny you mention it. It's something our rugby teams in Australia do for training. Really? Their pre-season training, they have to run sand dunes and they do time trials up and down sand dunes for that reason. Like I mean, they're pro athletes and they wake up the next morning like they're at death's door. You know, it it, it seriously takes it out of you. Well, thank you for letting me know because rugby is now off of my list. (laughs) Well, that be doing that. <laughs> but uh, besides being a beach expert, as it so happens, you know a little bit about music. Uh, you've got a new single. Is it is it out already, or is it coming out soon? Sweet and low. It is out. It came out on uh, July the eighth. Okay, great. I have listened to this song a bunch of times. Thoroughly enjoy it. It has such a warm and inviting feel to it. Uh, And I I hope I'm not offending you when I say this, but it's a song to me that proves very easily that there is beauty in simplicity. Yes. I, it's a big part of when I put my albums together, it's almost seeing what you can take out of the song and still have it stand up. So simplicity is basically the calling card. And with this song, probably more so than any other on the album, I, um, it started almost as a ZZ top, inspired thing it was a a shuffle it had electric guitar quite a big drum kit sound and electric bass um but it just it's not like it didn't work that way and it was quite a late change to change it to the arrangement that we did but it was that effect it was suddenly pulling the drums out and thinking no that guitar part kind of floats quite nicely by itself maybe if i just put some light hand claps in a little bit of tambourine It'll just give the thing a bit of a lift and it'll be able to float along a little bit better. Um, and so it was It was that direct influence of just muting the drums, muting the bass, putting down a rough little acoustic guitar part thinking, actually, this thing might work as less of a ZZ Top Blues rock thing and more of like a, a Motown cut back, stripped back, and almost let it go as a soul song or a little soul R&B song. So, yeah, it's a funny you pick up on that because it's a – it was basically how this song came about or evolved to the point it was at was simplicity. Yeah. I could definitely see it working as a shuffle. I could see it having a beat to it. Uh, and, and, you know, the first time you hear a song, that's the way that you're going to most connect with it. So if you released both versions and then I heard the one with the beat, I'd be like, mm, I like the acoustic one better because that's, <laughs> you know, most likely yeah. the one that I'm going to identify with. I could hear it working, but I think this really gives the vocals a chance to come through and shine and when you start adding electric guitar and drums it becomes a battle for sound field exactly and you you couldn't be more right you started to hear even when i went back and redid the vocal takes it felt like i had these new pockets to hit nuances because it felt like there was all this space and room there to suddenly do what i wanted and then Again, what didn't happen in the ZZ Top version that happened in the version that we all hear now 
is at the beginning of the third verse, I drop the guitar out entirely and it just becomes a rhythm track with vocals. So I think if that hadn't have happened, if I hadn't have pulled and stripped the song back, I don't think I would have thought that because you, you're exactly right. You suddenly get to hit those little nuances with the vocals that just weren't or didn't feel available to you because it felt like the bass was in that pocket or, you know, the drums were filling that hole at that point. So, yeah, it's very true, very true. And you've always got the hi-hat or ride cymbal to contend with no matter what you do. But yep, absolutely. I, I find it interesting because you're a drummer also. And so for a drummer to say, let me hear this without the drums, are you becoming more of a producer? I think so. I'm I'm trying to convince myself that laziness didn't come in and this was near the end. And I was thinking, oh, sweet, I don't have to cut any more drum tracks. Sweet, you know. Right, yeah. Um, but so I, I did think that to a maybe to a certain extent. But um, I think that absolutely, um, particularly because back in Australia, I had a drum kit set up the whole time and you got to go and play it quite a bit. And it was sort of part of your daily work routine, I suppose, was keeping up a certain amount of competency on drums. But I think so. I think the more you pull away and the more you start to write, you do start to think it gets to be a bigger picture, bigger picture, bigger picture. Yes, I spent a lot of time on the drums and I wanted to get them right. But if this is working better with hand claps and tambourine, it's like hearing about directors having to cut their favorite scene from a film because it doesn't just work with the flow. It holds it up or something. And it is, you can, I've had to do it numerous times on this album, cut out a little guitar melody part that might be my favorite part of the song because it's just not, it's not driving with the whole thing put together. It certainly shows a maturity that you're not about. I like this part, so it's going to stay in the song. You're thinking on the mindset of more the you've written the song as the creator. Now you've put the producer hat on and said, now I need to look at this outside of being the creator and think what is the best for the album and for the song. That is such a hard thing for most musicians because we get so attached to that solo or to that that hook that we put in there. You can always save those for other songs. Exactly. Isn't that so true? Like it's particularly these days, it's never, it's not like it's a piece of tape that can get warped. I mean, it's a digital file you can call up again and again if you need it. So you're absolutely right. It's not like we're so blessed in that sense. It's not like 40 years ago where it was literally like you were scrunching up a piece of paper and throwing it over your shoulder. It's, it's still going to be there if need be. Yeah. Or I have to keep these magnetic reels away from the heat for yeah. the next 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of the album. Um, this It's interesting because this isn't typically my genre. Um, it, you know, it just isn't. But there's something about this song that I really, I, I don't know if connect is the right word or if it just, it just feels right. It feels warm. It's enjoyable. I don't get bored at all during the song. I mean, it's, it's what, about three minutes or two and a half, a little over two and a half minutes, um, but which isn't much. But even in that time, if I don't like something, 30 seconds in, I'm going to be like, next. Very true, isn't it? There's that initial human reaction, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's really good. And it's got such a nice flow to it. I think the, the dual guitar tracks, just the way that they're picked, I think they work so well together that there's a fluid motion that kind of propels it forward, but not at a velocity. It's just like you get on a boat that's just going to kind of float gently down the Mississippi you don't even need to paddle. It's just going to go. You don't need to worry about anything. Just stay in the boat and enjoy the ride. 
that's you exactly used the word there float as soon as i as soon as i heard it as it is now it just had that feeling where it floated and that guitar part is almost like a walking blues bass line so it was like i'd sort of i hadn't completely thrown the bass away so i kept that in there to a, a certain extent because i knew that it was sort of going to work with the acoustic and they were going to wrap in nicely together um, and then the other thing because i I, I record and play everything myself. I'm always trying to think in terms of I don't necessarily want the listener to think, well, he's laid this down and then laid that down. I wanted to think of it almost as one fluid take, as if an acoustic guitar player has gone in there sitting across from an electric guitar player and they've cut a song together. So it was the, just two little parts weaving in. But it did. It just as soon as you stuck that little guitar part with the acoustic, it started to float and uh, it flowed a lot better. And also I, I play solo quite a bit, uh, certainly more than I do with a band. So I, I think it gave me a little bit more confidence knowing that the song could stand up in a live setting with say just acoustic and a vocals and a singer songwriter sort of set up too. So um, it, yeah, it used to kick the song into that floating groove and it was able to just to take off. I wouldn't say the ZZ Top version was stodgy, but, just when you've got those driving drums and that deep bottom uh, bass part, it, it does give a different sort of feel or picture to it, I suppose. And I have to say, too, the, the low-end balance is perfect on this. It's, it's got enough of a low-end presence, but not so much that it starts dominating. It, it just kind of sits right where it needs to be. I got, and I, I've got to give all the credit there to uh, my friend in Nashville, Zeev. Uh, he's born in Israel, but sort of lived in LA as a musician. And I send him for all my mixing work. And I was a little bit worried about that. I thought, will this be too bassy? Will it try and fill itself out? But he sent back the mix and it was just, like you said, it was just that perfect thing. It didn't get dragged down by too much, too much muddy bottom end or anything like that. It just hit that little sweet spot right in the middle. It does. I'm really glad that you didn't add like an acoustic bass track to it. I think that easily could have thrown that over the edge exactly and it's funny you mention it because it is a temptation isn't it from a, a songwriter's point of view to at least put it in there and see what it's like and yeah. i did i will I, I did do a little bass part in there but it was night and day like hitting mute on the bass track it was just oh okay, <laughs> it doesn't need to be there exactly and, and i should point out too because you mentioned that there's a little bit of percussion in there it's very subtle you know, usually when, when people hear there's there's claps or tambourine or, or you know, some cowbell or whatever, they think it's going to dominate because a lot of times they do really kind of make sure that you hear it. This is very subtle. It's, it's almost at times imperceptible. Like you really kind of have to strain to hear it. It's there. It has an awareness of it, but it's not in your face. Exactly. And it was because I played the tambourine, I put it down on a chair and covered it half with a little blanket. And I just tap lightly on it. But it does, it almost sounds like if you've ever seen those solo guitar players that wrap a little bell to their ankle, a little mini tambourine. It does sound like something that's just small. It's almost imperceptible in the background. It's almost as if the guy clapping his hands has a little something around his wrist or something. But you're quite right. It is very, and it is so easy to dominate because I'm playing with my fingers. The acoustic guitar is quite delicate a lot of the guitar playing is muted, so they're very 
uh, very mildly played, I suppose. So um, mm-hmm. uh, it was yeah, quite important, you're quite right, because it could have been a tambourine fest or a hand clap festival. Yeah, well, and it, I mean, yeah. you're talking sounds that are mostly attack too. I mean, a, a hand clap doesn't really have much of a decay. Uh, really, a tambourine doesn't either. So it's with, with the acoustic guitar, you're getting the strum of the note or the pick of the strings, but you're getting the decay as the, the vibration slows down. With percussive instruments, you're getting a hit unless it's a cymbal, you know, that's going to have that similar to a guitar decay. So they really can be disruptive. And and I've taken a lot of those out of songs I've written over the years, because I do find that if they're too quiet in some of the songs, they're kind of pointless. But if they're, if they're loud enough to be noticed, they're too loud. It's so true, isn't it? And it's such a you wouldn't think it's such a delicate balancing act with something like a tambourine. You would think after all these years, we must have it figured out how to use it and how to mix it in there. And you're absolutely right. Even the way you play, I remember recording it. I was, was my dominant finger going to be my index finger or my middle finger when I'm coming down on the two and the four and little things like that can make such a difference to where it's popping in the mix too. It's, um, the delicacy, just how temperamental a tambourine can be is yeah, ridiculous in a way. It, it really is. And you wouldn't think that it would be. I mean, it's such a common instrument. People that don't know how to play it just pick it up and start playing it and they can make a sound, not unlike a violin. But there's there's real technique even to a tambourine. It's, it's really quite fascinating. I remember watching um, Standing in the Shadows of Motown um, about the uh, the Funk Brothers, the guys who were largely the session musicians for Motown. And there was a guy who was hired seven days a week as a tambourine player. So guys used to laugh at me. I used to turn up to rehearsal and have their double bass in its case or their guitars or their kit. And I'd turn up holding a little tambourine case. (laughs) I'd get it out and I could solo. I could, it sounded like a little band at my fingertips. And they are there. Particularly coming here and seeing the Latin influence. We don't have a lot of Latin culture in Australia or not not in terms of any South Americans or Latins living in, in Australia. Um, so coming here and getting to see Latin music firsthand and seeing Latin culture, my God, the percussionists are just something else. And what they can do with a tambourine is out of this world. Yeah. It's, it's really stunning to watch. I've seen some Latin bands perform, and I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's hypnotic watching some of those guys perform. Yeah, it's, it's quite something. I mean, picking... I mean, it's just, it sounds almost impossible. You close your eyes, it's not a tambourine. It's a, it's a little rhythm section doing its own thing. It's just something else. So um, it all put me in my place. I knew where my tambourine boundaries were. <laughs> for this so I'll keep it to a shuffle and I'll, I know I know my place now. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'll tell you, for anybody who, you know, if I wasn't an audio engineer, I don't really think I would understand that delicate balance. Uh, But for those of you guys, if you ever get a chance to sit behind a mixing board and it has a tambourine track and the rest of the song is pretty much mixed, just to ask if you can find the level for the tambourine and and just play with the fader and see where you think it fits. It's it's quite something like I'm glad I didn't. If I mixed albums, I don't think it would go anywhere because of the (laughs) tambourine. I'm glad I get to give it to someone who mixes because it's like, okay, you got the expertise for this. You you can know you know how to make it sing. There you go. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so you you don't have a, an exact release date for the new album, but you're hoping around mid to end September. What is the performing situation like in Nashville these days? It's uh, it is a little bit different down here now. It's um, you've got 
I mean, post-pandemic, I'm down in New Orleans and I send my stuff up to Nashville. And I know Nashville at the moment's very hard to, and always has been hard to get work in the clubs. There's such a plethora of phenomenal musicians, particularly since it's become such a business center and you've got people packing up from LA and New York. Um, I know it. it's not been great and it's obviously been even tougher post-pandemic because some of the clubs just haven't survived. And down here in New Orleans, we are fortunate. We've got a few historic venues because New Orleans is such a small town, big city. I was a little bit worried because some of our most famous music rooms are basically bar rooms that fit about 180 people, but have had Louis Armstrong and Buddy Bolden play back in the day. So they're, they're storied venues. Um, fortunately, all of them seem to have made it through the pandemic unscathed. Hopefully over the next year, they can keep the keep the tires spinning and everything will be okay. Um, and it's actually not been too bad. I, I used to play at a, a club called Chicky Wawa at a weekly residency pre-pandemic. Um, and that's, uh, that was a little bit unsure what was going to happen with that, but that's been bought by a big venue here in New Orleans, the Civic Theatre, and they're redoing that and keeping it, uh, keeping it up. But I lost that gig personally because the place is shut down, I think, until basically the maybe the end of the summer they'll have that back up and running. But um, I guess New Orleans being New Orleans, restaurants have really got together. I've picked up a regular gig at a few restaurants around town that are suddenly pushing jazz and blues and soul and funk music. Um, so it's been very sweet to see people fill in the gaps. Even porch concerts were a big thing down here during the pandemic. You've got all these beautiful New Orleans porches, so people would host a three or a four band line up from four to ten at night, and people could just set up in the street, socially distanced with their little folding chairs and watch a concert. So it's very cool to watch people power sort of come together and fill the gap for musicians until life gets properly back to normal. Well, performers got to perform. I mean, it's regardless of what's going on in the world, you, you just have that gene in you. And when you're so used to doing that, like we were talking before the show, uh, I live in Vegas and we I've got so many friends that are performers in the show. A lot of them were kind of going stir crazy because it's just, this is what I do. I, I do four hours a, a night, five nights a week in front of crowds. I don't have people cheering. I don't have that satisfaction on their face for something that I just did or, or, you know, whatever somebody in the show did. There's, that's really hard to get past when that's what you do. Um, for you as a performing musician, how did you deal with it? You know, at least the first year or so of not being able to go out there and play? It, it was very strange, particularly because I was used to doing probably two or three gigs a week every week and that was sort of what you shaped your whole week around where's my rehearsal time my preparation for those gigs and so you definitely feel untethered the first six months you just feel and because at that point it was so unsure about where we were going to be with the pandemic I suppose we thought well a few months life will be back to normal and well maybe the next few months life will be back to normal <laughs> so yeah. I think you're always hanging your hat on that a little bit and then suddenly you realize we're in for a bit of a marathon um so it was very strange i didn't do any virtual concerts either um i do play the new orleans cigar box guitar festival down here in january every year so i did do that in 2020 um for so that was a virtual concert that we all recorded clips at home and sent them in 
Um, I think I was very fortunate in that I arrived in the States in 2017 when I'd released my previous album, Montserrat. And so beginning of 2020, I still hadn't put anything new out since then. So I had that slight pressure of having to record and put something out. And so I was probably about six months into the pandemic. That just sort of became the focus um, was, okay, I've got a stack of songs here to record. I've got the time to do it. Let's just sort of knuckle down and do this. So I got very fortunate in that sense. Whereas if I, like if I'd just recorded an album, was getting ready to put it out and the pandemic hit, that would have been such a, such an, a bizarre feeling to put all that time, like, you know, to put all that time and effort into an album and then sort of not be able to do anything with it. So I, and I knew a few people down here in that position. So I was very fortunate in that sense that I had Mississippi Bound, the new album's going to end up being about 15 songs, but it was initially going to be a 20-song double album. So I just thought, I've got all this time, let's just, this will help fill the gap until until things come back in. So I got very lucky in that sense. It was enough to worry about anyway with an album being recorded. Yeah. Well, and, and also the fact that you... You know, I mean, aside from the financial aspect of not being able to go out and gig, but it, but you weren't like, okay, I have to hurry up and lay this track because I've got to leave in 20 minutes to go perform at this bar, this restaurant. I mean, you could actually really focus on the performance and not have that stress of I've only got X amount of time to get this done. I can't tell you how many times I said to myself, how often again in life will you get an opportunity like this? Where you can wake up, warm up for three or four hours and then, you know, worry about laying down tracks for four or five hours. I mean, just have no time pressure in a way. Um, for the most part anyway, it was, yeah, it was incredibly refreshing in that sense because you're exactly right. Recording otherwise is always like that. There's something happening. You've got a, a million things on the back burner. You're trying to get a little bit of time in to lay down a track for something. You're running off somewhere. Um, so it was that was an absolute pleasure. If there was a silver lining to the pandemic, I think to be able to just to wallow in creativity like that was 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 very fun to to not have any time pressure. Yeah, I, I mean, I it, it sounds horrible to say in, in one way, but I think you understand there are certain good things that have come out of this situation. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have died. A lot of people have are, are permanently damaged with not being able to taste or smell. And those things are horrible. Aside from that, there are some good things that have come out of it. A lot of people are able to work at home now. A lot of people have been uh, off of the roads, which means less money on gas, less pollution in the air, those sort of things. Um, the world in some ways did take advantage of the situation and said, we have to create something better, you know, something to work around some of this. But certainly for recording artists, especially those of us who can record at home and don't need to go to a studio for, for a lot of what we do, uh, it certainly gave us the time to be able to just focus and, and concentrate and relax and record something and write something without the normal pressures of just general life. It's so true, isn't it? I mean, it's I mean, like you said, the, the silver linings to this. I mean, I, I kept thinking because I was a guitar teacher back in Australia too. I had private students. And I think now of how many stories you hear of great players who at 14 or 15 just spent a summer inside woodshedding on an instrument and it was a huge foundational part of their career. And I do think over the past two years, how many 
unbelievable teenagers have been in their bedrooms getting like absolutely working their ass off and they're gonna like in the five or six years we're gonna see the fruits of the labors of these unbelievable kids who were locked in their rooms for 18 months but really did something with it so you're exactly right there was there was obviously such a dark side to it but and you absolutely the environmental pluses to not having air, you know, planes in the air all the time and all of this. There, there were some um, some absolute upsides. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The amount of art we're going to see, I'm sure some phenomenal artists just sat there stockpiling sculptures, visual art, music, scores. I mean, I can only imagine what's going to be un, unleashed on the world in the next few years. Well, and I know that, that a lot of places had slowed down production. I mean, people weren't pressing records because there was only like one manufacturing plant that stayed open or, or reopened shortly after the pandemic started. Uh, book publishers, same things. A lot of the printing presses, they couldn't print because they could be at the printing press. So there's a huge delay, I think. And then we're going to see a huge just flood of art coming at us, you know, anytime. Uh, and then those of us that release a lot of our stuff digitally, it didn't really affect because we can we can upload to iTunes anytime. That's not a problem. Uh, but yeah, I think there's a lot of there's there's a flood of stuff yet to come that was created during all of this, too. It was I mean, yeah, I mean, from the Australian perspective, we had ACDC release an album in the end of 2020 mid pandemic. So there's the whole backup of the tour for that. I mean, so many acts seem to be holding stuff back. You're quite right. It was just too high. I mean, I know vinyl pressing, there was suddenly a shortage on the materials to press vinyl. So a lot of bands held back what they were le- releasing because they couldn't get vinyl to the fans who'd ordered them. So Yeah, that I- happened to uh, Deep Purple when they came out with their studio album, Whoosh. That was delayed a couple months because they couldn't get it pressed uh, quickly enough to meet that release date. Uh, I think, too, uh, the other thing along with that is that there was a holdback from the record companies because they couldn't get the bands out on the road to support the album. And if it was going to be another year, well, they're going to have to do another album. So that was just throwing money in, hoping people would buy it and not stream it. And they would at least break even and keep the fans interested. But there was there was no ability to support with a tour. So it was kind of like, do we put it out to, to keep people engaged or do we wait? Or, you know, if this thing goes another three years, it's going to need another album anyway. So <laughs> it's so true. isn't it? And I mean, it's record labels do cop so much flack these days for not treating their artists right or whatever it may be. But I mean, it's hard not to see it from their perspective during a pandemic too. they're hemorrhaging money as is. And now they've got to somehow put out product without the bands even being able to push the product in any sort of normal way, even in a a virtual world it's yeah you do need to be out on the road you know it's uh, so yeah it was catch 22 for everyone unfortunately this is definitely one situation where i i did think about the record company's perspective a lot and thinking what decisions would i make how do you even predict this isn't any any trend that they've seen in the industry where you know maybe disco came around and i'm like all right here's what we're going to do with disco here's what we did with punk you know, and we're just going to ride out the storm or whatever. It, you couldn't, there was nothing at all to compare it to because they weren't releasing records during the Black Plague. So, you know, <laughs> every everything was like, I guess this might happen or I think this is the best thing to do. There was just no way to know. Exactly. And I mean, I, I wonder how many little independent labels folded during all of this. Because I know if you're a, a Warner Brothers or a Sony or a, 
a BMG, whoever you might be. If you're a major label, you've probably got the means to keep everything going. But I did worry about sort of little, because, I mean, America is just so phenomenal for killer little independent labels that will start little movements. And you, I did worry big time for those guys. I thought, what do you do? You're treading water as is. And then a pandemic hits and you think, oh, my God. But I've got to say, for art and keeping going is yeah you guys are something else i mean where there's a will there's a way here for sure it's hard to stop the art i and i think a lot of those companies and i i could be wrong i'm completely speculating here but i think a lot of those companies are companies that are done on the side of having like a, a day job or something like that so my hope for a lot of those is that they're small enough to where they could just put on the back burner and that they'll pick up again at some point um, but, but I'm sure there's a lot that fall in that. I'm not really a small record company, but I'm not Warner Brothers and I didn't make it. I, I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of that that happened too. Uh, so obviously you're, you're hoping to uh, be able to support this with some shows. Do you, are you hoping to do some touring? Are you planning on staying in New Orleans? That's the plan at the moment. Um, I've got, we're trying to coincide the release of the album more or less with a little tour up the Mississippi Delta here. Um, start in New Orleans and um, ironically an, an Australian who I used to play for in Sydney at her club moved to Clarksdale in the Mississippi Delta and runs a little restaurant and music club so I got to Clarksdale it's like a little Australian embassy in the middle of the Delta and so I'll trying to coincide a little tour with that for the release of the album um, there's a I did quite well in my previous two albums in Dallas and Atlanta. They reached the top five of the blues charts there. But, yeah, thanks very much, man. So I'm going to hopefully get out to go to Atlanta and Dallas to do some engagements. Um, but the main thrust at the moment is to be in Australia for November, December and do basically sort of a six week uh, tour up and down the East coast of Australia. Um, sort of see the family again i've not seen them for a while with the pandemic um, i'll be back in new orleans for uh, the new orleans cigar box festival in january um so hopefully yeah release the album mid end of september and then probably play a good three months behind that till i'm back here in uh, january which would be nice uh, in an ideal world anyway fingers crossed well i certainly hope it all comes together i know that international travel is is starting to open up a little bit more and more i know that australia is a little more conservative about that kind of thing and that's how they've stayed relatively safe through all this so i can't complain about that but i hope it works out with your timing uh let me ask you one more thing because i've never been to new orleans and i've heard a lot about uh, like when bands go to record up in Nashville, they'll record during the day and then they'll take a dinner break and then they'll just walk up and down the street and there's all kinds of bands playing. In New Orleans, I think I have this wrong impression that it's just a lot of uh, Dixieland stuff, a lot of trumpets and trombones and, uh, you know, a lot of when the saints come marching in parades and that. What's the reality of, of just walking down the street in a place like that? Because, I mean, you guys are, are as touristy as we are here in Vegas, but you're also a city like we are with, without that. Absolutely. Well, it's funny. If you walk down uh, Frenchman Street, so Bourbon Street's the famous street in New Orleans in the French Quarter. And on Bourbon Street, you'll hear, I mean, everything. You'll hear 80s hair metal cover bands to Dixieland jazz to blues because it is it's such a tourist center. They cater for everything. A place not too far from there, Frenchman Street, is called the Locals Bourbon. 
Um, and there will be quite a bit of Dixieland jazz. You'll probably have four or five Dixieland jazz bands there a day because I guess they are in that city where it's part of the culture and they keep Louis Armstrong and Kid Ory and all the old traditional jazz going. What you'll also hear, particularly walking on the street, is kind of new age New Orleans brass bands, which incorporate hip-hop, funk, um, Miles Davis, a very contemporary jazz sort of stuff. But in New Orleans, it all has to be danceable. So there's always a funky beat behind it. Everyone in the street's dancing. And these bands will just pop up. There'll be like a 12-piece brass band. Someone will stick a cardboard box around for tips and they'll pop up on street corners. You'll also have your Bob Dylan, Tom Waits, uh, James Taylor S songwriter types on the streets that do quite well in New Orleans. Not so much in the clubs, but in the streets, absolutely. Um, once you get into the clubs, get a lot more, I guess, funk music. I suppose in Dixieland Jazz, you'll have a lot of three, four-piece funk combos influenced by the Meters or Alan Toussaint or Dr. John. Um, an underground scene of blues or two. Um, lots of killer piano players, solo piano players, because we've had, I guess, Jelly Roll Morton, Professor Longhair, Dr. John. There's a, a lineage of piano players. So you can see jazz piano, blues piano, boogie-woogie, R&B stuff everywhere. Um, but in terms of the whole city, there's quite a big death metal scene. Really? Fact, quite a few, almost all genres of metal are catered for, which I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, I'm not that knowledgeable about rap or hip-hop, but bounce music, which is quite big, came out of New Orleans. So Little Wayne's from New Orleans. Um, other big rappers I'm not that aware of, but they're also out of New Orleans. So there's a huge rap scene as well. Um, we've also got um, some phenomenal jazz players. Uh, John Batiste, who's on Stephen Colbert's show, um, he's the host of the band on Stephen Colbert. He used to run a killer contemporary jazz combo down here. So you also have those guys aspiring to be Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. That scene's still down here too. Um, I mean, killer rock and roll. We've got lots of colleges, so you've got whatever the kids are into, very poppy, very alternate indie rock and roll. There's a lot more of, them, of that than you'd think. It's, I can't really think of what you wouldn't be catered for. Lots of reggae, lots of island sounds um, because we're so nearby, so there's Jamaican joints that'll have a little reggae act which, and some phenomenal reggae bands. And then, as I touched on earlier, Latin too because we get some Cuban festivals, there's some Cuban restaurants and all the jazz guys study the hell out of all the Cuban lines. And oh, the Cuban yeah. So that's always, there's always a Cuban and Latin tinge to any of the jazz stuff going on too, but it's pretty much whatever you want. Yeah. So the one thing it sounds like you guys don't have a lot of, at least maybe not outside of the, the large concert, ha concert halls would be orchestral music, but you don't typically see a 60 piece symphony just pop up <laughs> the cardboard box out for tips you know yeah, that's, it's, just, it's very true they're not really street performers yeah um we've got the mahalia jackson theater here which hosts it hosts a lot of plays and theaters as well as music they will occasionally have orchestral music but you're absolutely right it is very rare to see it occasionally you'll have a big r&b guy 
John Cleary or some of the uh, Alan Toussaint, Dr. John guys like that will occasionally pop up with a New Orleans Philharmonic or things like that. But it's once in a blue moon. It is once in a blue moon. Yeah. Well, I love that you have such a, a cultural variety. I think about you know, the kids and what an opportunity they have to experience such a taster tray of, of different sounds. Yep. I mean, that's the other guy, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He used to have a studio down here and he pumped that uh, sort of industrial metal out of here. So it was, it was particularly coming from Australia. It's, you know, it's the nickname of the city, birthplace of jazz. I thought Roots was pretty much all I was going to find. But um, I mean, I've seen some I'm not like, I'm not a huge metal guy, but there's been some phenomenal metal bands that you just stumbled upon where the guys just play their ass off. They're absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. There's a lot of talent, I think, in everything. You know, even you know, a lot of people that that want to put rap down. Honestly, there is so much talent that goes into that, especially not not necessarily the statement of the lyrics, because that's going to be very subjective to whether you like it or you think it's intelligent or not, but the style of performing it the rhythm of it, the inflections, where you put your emphasis. There's so much that goes into that. And when I really sit down and and dig into a rap song, and I don't listen to a lot, but sometimes it just I just want to hear it as an artist. I want to, you know, understand the work they put into it. It blows my mind. It's it's funny, isn't it? It's one of those things rap can't be this popular and have that many artists vying for for attention in that space without there being a serious art form or skill to to standing out and doing because there's so much competition if it was that easy we'd all be doing it (laughs) i can make beats yeah yeah, exactly yeah (laughs) i have a couple of 808 kicks in my arsenal you know well, I, I, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out to uh, to chat with me. It's been absolutely wonderful. I love the new single. Check it out, folks. I've got the link to his website and to the single in the show notes, Sweet and Low. Fantastic song. Some of the best two and a half minutes that you're going to spend in your life. And I'll give you a little secret that uh, I discovered and we talked about. We didn't talk about it on the show. We talked about it before the show. If you listen around the two minute and 29 second mark, there's a little audio treasure in the song for you. So listen for that and just listen to the song. I guarantee it's going to put a smile on your face. If it doesn't, you might already be dead. <laughs> Thanks so much for saying so, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Mate. Oh, my pleasure. Come back again. I really hope the timing of, of all of this works out, that you can get to Australia, that you can get back to New Orleans for the, the Cigar Box Festival. I think that's... That's a really cool thing to be able to do. Fingers crossed. Hey, hopefully the world works in our favor. <laughs> you got that, my friend. Come back and see us again. Absolutely. I will too. Hopefully the album will be out not too long. I'll be able to come back for a chat. It'd be great. That'd be awesome. Well, take care and thanks for now and good luck on all this stuff. Cheers, Scott. Thanks very much. Man. Thank you.